Good morning, everyone. Good morning. My Bible's opened up to the very first page of the New Testament, Matthew chapter 1. And that is where we will be for the entirety of the lesson. So grab a Bible and open it up to Matthew chapter 1, and we'll begin reading there in just a moment. And as you're turning there, I'll say how great it is to see everybody this fine Lord's Day morning. I am so glad that you chose to be with us for this period of worship and edification. We've got several of our family that are traveling and worshiping in other places today, but we're really glad to have some guests of our own in attendance. Some family members, both physical and spiritual, here with us today. And we want you to know that we are encouraged by your presence, and we hope that we're making you feel comfortable and at home as we reverence the Lord together. Let's reverence the Lord right now in His Word. In Matthew chapter 1, read with me please in verse 18. In Matthew 1 and in verse 18, the Bible says, Now the birth of Jesus the Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. I suspect that in many pulpits this morning, attention is being given to this verse and to the discussion of the birth of Jesus the Christ. And that is not just commendable, that is important. Think about it. When Jesus was born, God came here. God left heaven and invaded the earth. That is an amazing and astonishing truth. And while there are certainly lots of misunderstandings, lots of confusion about the birth of Christ today, and a lot of that is due to the blurring together of a man-made secular holiday with the biblical and scriptural narrative, I am glad nonetheless that there is widespread interest in Jesus at this particular time of year. If nothing else, it gives us the opportunity to capitalize on that interest and to talk to people about the Lord. However... In all of that discussion at this time of the year about Jesus and about His birth and about that thrilling story that unfolds right there in verse 18 and continues on through the rest of chapter 1 and then even the subsequent events in chapter 2, I wonder I wonder how many people have actually noticed that Matthew's gospel does not begin in verse 18. In fact, the New Testament account of the story of Jesus does not begin in verse 18. No, through the direction and the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, Matthew begins his gospel with those first 17 verses that comprise for us the record of the genealogy of Jesus. And this morning, I want to read that genealogy, and I want to preach about that genealogy. Who here is ready for a good old-fashioned sermon on genealogies? Wow, that didn't quite garner the level of enthusiasm and excitement that maybe I was hoping for. And I get it. I know why that is. I understand why there's not a whole lot of fervor about that. And that's because it's because genealogies are boring. It's this one beget this one, and that one beget that one. And it's just this big long list of begetting with all of these unpronounceable names. And let's just be honest, most of the time, we just don't want to read it. We certainly don't want to dig in and study it. We don't want to get bogged down in all of that dry, and maybe in some ways we think it's kind of irrelevant material, because we want to get to the good stuff. 
We want to get to the exciting stuff. We want to get to that stuff where Jesus is born of a virgin. Where He's laid in a manger. Where He's then visited by the shepherds and the star in the sky. And later on the wise men, they come and they worship Him. And there is the praises in heaven of the holy angelic host. We want to get to that. We want to get to the action. But I'm going to suggest to you this morning that those first 17 verses actually form the canvas upon which Matthew wants to paint his magnum opus, his remarkable portrait of the Christ. And so instead of just rushing right by this genealogy, I'm going to invite you to just camp here for a few minutes. Sit down with me in these first 17 verses, and let's see if maybe we can learn a thing or two from this genealogy that opens up the New Testament. And so, if you have not already, get a Bible out. Let's all be looking at the text. Let's all read these verses together. And don't worry, I'm not going to ask you to do any reading out loud. I'll take the lead here. I've been practicing these names a little bit. But let's all read it together and let's see. Let's see as we're reading here for the next couple minutes. Pay careful attention. See what stands out to you as we're reading through this. Are you ready? Matthew chapter 1, verse 1. The book or the record of the genealogy of Jesus the Christ. The son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers. And Judah the father of Perez and Zerah by Tamar, and Perez the father of Hezron, and Hezron the father of Ram. And Ram the father of Amminadab, and Amminadab the father of Nation, and Nation the father of Salmon, and Salmon the father of Boaz by Rahab, and Boaz the father of Obed by Ruth, and Obed, the father of Jesse, and Jesse, the father of David, the king. And David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah. And Solomon, the father of Rehoboam, and Rehoboam, the father of Abijah. And Abijah, the father of Asaph, and Asaph, the father of Jehoshaphat. And Jehoshaphat, the father of Joram, and Joram, the father of Uzziah. And Uzziah, the father of Jotham, and Jotham, the father of Ahaz, and Ahaz, the father of Hezekiah. And Hezekiah the father of Manasseh, and Manasseh the father of Amos, and Amos the father of Josiah, and Josiah the father of Jeconiah and his brothers at the time of the deportation to Babylon. And after the deportation to Babylon, Jeconiah was the father of Shealtiel, and Shealtiel the father of Zerubbabel, and Zerubbabel the father of Abiah, and Abiah the father of Eliakim, and Eliakim the father of Azor, and Azor the father of Zadok, and Zadok the father of Achim, and Achim the father of Eliad. And Eliad the father of Eleazar, and Eleazar the father of Mathen, and Mathen the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary of whom Jesus was born, who is called the Christ. So all the generations from Abraham to David were fourteen generations. And from David to the deportation to Babylon, 14 generations. And from the deportation to Babylon to the Christ, 14 generations. Now, that wasn't too bad, was it? I I didn't lose anybody, I don't think. What exactly do we want to say about all of that? Well, usually when we read these verses and begin to kind of study them a little closer, a couple of things get brought to the surface. The first thing that usually happens is we want to know about the difference in Matthew's genealogy and the genealogy that's recorded in Luke's gospel in Luke chapter 3 because because there's some differences. And we want to know about that. We want to know how do you deal with those inconsistencies. 
And then, of course, there's usually some discussion about how some of the fathers that are listed here are actually grandfathers. And so it seems to us that some of these generations are maybe getting skipped. Well, what exactly is up with that? And so what happens is we have these kinds of textual questions and we end up just kind of venturing off. We end up taking this side point over here and make a long study about how you go about reconciling supposed Bible discrepancies. Now, I'm not saying that that's unimportant. We ought to do that. In fact, maybe even on a Q&A night at some point in the future, we'll address that very thing. That's an important thing to do. But, but what if you were standing in Matthew's audience? What if you were in that original audience, hearing this gospel read, what would you have heard in that genealogy? I assure you that no one who was hearing this for the first time was listening with one ear, and then over here in their right hand was looking up Luke chapter 3, and they were just noticing and making a comparison check. Well, that's, that's not really lining up here. Nobody in their left hand was holding a copy of the Old Testament Scriptures looking at Chronicles and saying, Hey, Matthew, you skipped a couple of people there. I think you only need to fill in these holes here. No. No, if you were in Matthew's audience, what you would have heard were all of these very recognizable Israelite and Jewish names. That would have been the first thing that stood out to you. And there are a whole bunch of names here, aren't there? And the reason for that is because Matthew wants to show us first and foremost that Jesus is the fulfillment of all of God's plans throughout the Old Testament. You know, what this genealogy sounds like to us is that somebody took all of the names that are recorded in Joshua and Samuel and Kings and maybe even tossed in a few from Ezra and Malachi, threw them all in a hat and somebody just started picking out names because this genealogy, it is very Jewy. It is very Hebrewish. In fact, these aren't just any old names. No, this list is a virtual hall of fame of the Old Testament. Did you notice that there? Names like Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and David and Solomon and Hezekiah and more. What exactly is Matthew trying to say here? Well, I believe Matthew is tying Jesus firmly to the Old Testament. You think about it. Matthew is saying here, Jesus was born a Jew. He could have been born anything. God could have chosen to have Jesus be born in any other kind of way. He could have been born a Roman. He could have been born a Samaritan. He could have been born an Egyptian. Somebody right now is thinking, no, Josh, no, no, no. He couldn't have been born any of those things because God promised Abraham that the Messiah would come from his lineage. The Messiah would be born out of his family. And you know what? That is exactly right. And that is exactly why Matthew begins verse 1 by saying, Jesus Christ, the Son of David. That's a fulfillment of 2 Samuel chapter 7. Jesus Christ, the Son of Abraham. That's a fulfillment of Genesis chapter 12. Jesus is rooted and connected to the Old Testament. Which means then that Jesus' birth is not just some random coincidence, some random event. Jesus was not just wandering around heaven one day and said, You know what? I think I'll go down and visit Mary and Joseph. I think I'll see what they're doing today. No! It was all planned. It was carefully planned. And it was carefully executed over centuries and centuries of time. 
All the way back in the Garden of Eden in Genesis chapter 3, when sin entered into this world, God meticulously planned how He would bring sinful people back into fellowship with Him. And now right here in Matthew chapter 1, we are seeing those plans take shape in the form and in the person of Jesus. In fact, that's exactly what Matthew says a little further down in chapter 1. Look in verse 22. In verse 22... All of this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. And then what follows is a quotation from Isaiah the prophet. Isaiah chapter 7, Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel. Jesus is the fulfillment of God's great plan weaved all throughout the pages of the Old Testament. And there are, you need to know, there are implications here for us. First and foremost, this thinking that anything that happened to come before, that little blank white page that separates the New Testament from what come before it, this thinking that, oh, anything before that little page there, eh, it's really not all that big of a deal. It's not really all that relevant to us. I mean, come on, it's... It's old. It's the Old Testament. I'm all about the New. Just give me that New Testament. That line of thinking, that line of thinking is a mistake. Because what Matthew is telling us is that there isn't really even anything new here. What God is doing is He is working out the plan that covers all of Scripture. It's on every page. And so to dismiss the Old Testament by saying, eh, we don't really need that stuff in there, that is to dismiss Jesus Himself. Because Jesus grows out of the Old Testament. He grows out of the soil of the Old Testament, if you will. And so if you really want to know and understand and appreciate Jesus, then you need to know some stuff about those names about who those people are, about what they did, about what God did and accomplished through those people in order to bring Jesus here. Honestly now, could you really understand and appreciate the American Civil War if you just started with the Battle of Gettysburg in 1863? If you just started there and you didn't have any clue of any of the stuff that came before it, you didn't know anything about the legislation or about the politics, or about the tensions that were mounting in our country that led to the war that started in 1861, and then all of the subsequent battles. Would you really know and appreciate all of that? No. No, you wouldn't if you jumped in halfway through the story. What makes us think then that we can really know and appreciate Jesus without having some understanding of all of the things that God did through His first covenant people, the Israelites, in order to bring that to pass. We need to value those things. We need to value that section of the Bible that Paul describes as the things written in former days. Because as Matthew's genealogy points out, Jesus is connected to the Old Testament Scriptures. Secondly, though, as you look at those names, what else do you see there? Not only do you notice that, yes, those are very Jewish kinds of names there, but did you also happen to notice maybe a few checkered names in that list? If you look at that list, it really is the boys' club, isn't it? 
There's about 40 men that are mentioned here. But then there, did you notice there's a little section there toward the top where some women's names appear. Did you see that? Those women, four of them in particular, they begin in verse 3 with the mention of Tamar. Verse 5 then mentions Rahab and then also mentions Ruth. And then, of course, in verse 6, Bathsheba is referenced, although not mentioned by name. She is described there as being the wife of Uriah. Now, while it's certainly not unheard of for a Jewish genealogy to contain the names of women, the question is, why would you choose to include these women? I mean, do you know who these women are? Rahab, for example, was a prostitute. You can say a lot of good things about Rahab and about her character, but in the end, you can't say anything good about what she did for a living. Ruth, she was a Moabite. The Moabites were a constant thorn in the side of the Israelites. Tamar? Tamar seduced her father-in-law, Genesis chapter 38. The less said about that, the better. Bathsheba? Bathsheba is notoriously at the center of the most vile episode in King David's life when he commits adultery with her. These are not the kind of names that you would expect to be highlighted in a family genealogy that we're all going to be proud of and we're all going to speak highly of and we're all going to publicize. Think about it. If you were to get on, if you were to get on Ancestry.com, and you were going to do maybe an extensive genealogy search for your own family, well, what kind of things are you looking for? Well, what are you hoping for? Well, what you're hoping for is some noteworthy results, some information and some relatives that you can be proud of. Maybe you can even brag about a little bit. You know, hey, my 15th great-great-grandfather was George Washington. How cool was that? You're looking to find out, you know what, my great-great-uncle, he rode with Teddy Roosevelt and the Rough Riders up San Juan Hill. That, that's pretty cool to know that that's in my family tree. What you are not looking to find out is that 15 generations ago, you had an uncle named Bismo Funyuns, and he was the town drunk. Nobody wants that. You are not looking to find out that your great-great-great-great-great-great-grandfather was a murderer and they hung him in the town square. No. You want good names. And whenever we do have bad names in our family tree, what do we do? We usually try to lop those branches off the family tree. We don't want to draw attention to them. And we sure don't want those branches recorded in, in, in a public way. Certainly don't want them recorded in the pages of the Bible for everybody to see and say, Hey, look, Jesus is related to a woman who seduced her father-in-law. But Matthew does include that. Why does he do that? Why does he list that? I believe Matthew does that because he wants to illustrate that in bringing Jesus to this earth, God uses people with a very checkered past. And by the way, I don't want to make it seem like I'm just picking on the ladies in this genealogy, because it's not just the ladies who had a checkered past here. What about the men in that list? Abraham? Abraham was a noted liar. Jacob was a noted swindler. David was a noted adulterer. 
Manasseh, good grief, this guy sacrificed his own children to pagan gods. There are a lot of sinners in Jesus' family tree. There's a lot of people in Matthew chapter 1 that the Jews of the first century would have said, "Eh, eh, you're not really welcome here. In fact, there's a lot of people in Matthew chapter 1 that even good going, good church going folks today would look at and say, eh, you're not really welcome here. Yet here they are. Matthew includes them. Interestingly enough, a bunch of those people, especially those four women, they aren't even Israelites. They are not even in the the bloodline, family line of Abraham. But Matthew is showing us that God uses a lot of people. And He doesn't just use super pious, super righteous kinds of people. God uses sinners. Sinners who would come to know His grace and His mercy and His favor and His forgiveness and who would end up being forever enshrined, forever etched in that opening page of His New Testament so that we would know for all time that God uses even sinners to accomplish His will. That means that God uses sinners like you and sinners like me to accomplish His will. You know, I got to thinking, maybe the reason that there's a bunch of sinners in Jesus' genealogy is because there isn't anybody else for God to use. We are all sinners, Romans 3.23 says. And yet our God is so great, His wisdom is so profound, that He is even able to overcome that and use us anyway for His good. And so for anyone here today, who has decided to themselves, well, I've just messed my life up so much. My, It's just such a disaster. I've just done so many wrong and bad things. I'm so wicked. I've done so many things that the Lord would be ashamed of. He'd never want to have anything to do with me. I'm just so dirty in sin. What you probably need to do is you need to pull Matthew chapter 1 out and you need to go back to verse 1 and you need to read those first 17 verses again. You need to read those verses that nobody else wants to read because what you'll find there is a whole lot of people just like you. People who are incredibly flawed. People who are incredibly broken. But that God was able to use in a mighty, mighty way. Which brings us then to that third thing that Matthew's genealogy does for us. In fact, it is the very thing that makes it possible for God to use sinners in a right kind of way. In fact, it is the good news that flawed and broken and sinful people want to hear. And that good news is that Jesus is the Savior that each and every one of us needs. And in order for us to really grasp that truth from this genealogy... We're going to need to focus on the term that Matthew uses right there in verse 1. It's that term, Christ. Look at verse 1 again. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ. In fact, Matthew repeatedly uses that term Christ in these opening paragraphs. Look at verse 16 again. In verse 16, Jacob the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who is called... Christ. Look at the end of verse 17. From the deportation to Babylon to the Christ. 14 generations. Verse 18 that we opened up with. Now the birth of Jesus 
Christ took place in this way. In fact, if you're still here on this same page, chapter 2, verse 4, says in chapter 2, verse 4, He inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. Christ, that, that seems to be an important term. And it's an important term for Matthew to emphasize and for us to get a hold of. Because I am afraid that a lot of people today have been led to believe that Christ was Jesus' last name. That if you were to look on Jesus' driver's license, it would say, Jesus Christ, Nazareth. Or that Jesus' dad would walk around saying, Hi, I'm Joseph Christ. This is my wife, Mary Christ. Here's our little baby boy, Jesus Christ. No! Listen, Christ is not a last name. It's a title. It is an exalted title. It means, in the Hebrew, Messiah. It means... For us, in our just regular vernacular, it means Savior. Jesus is the Christ. He is the Anointed One. He is the Messiah. He is the Savior of the world. And Matthew is here to tell us what exactly He is saving us from. Would you look in verse 21? In verse 21, as the angel speaks to Joseph, she will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people... From their sins. The one that the Old Testament pointed to is now going to fix the problem that the Old Testament pointed out. That is, Jesus the Christ is going to save us from sin. What an announcement! What an awesome way to begin a book! What a message of hope! In a world that was so corrupt, think about the first century world. How the Roman Empire ruled with such corruption. How the earth was filled with such darkness, was dominated by such evil. In fact, what a message that we still need today. Things really have not changed. Do you remember a couple years ago? After those terrible mass shootings that happened in San Bernardino, California... There was this headline that was published in the New York Daily News, and in fact, it wasn't just published on that particular periodical, but it ended up just being published all over the place. In big, bold letters, after that mass shooting occurred, they said, God isn't fixing this. And that headline was designed to be critical of politicians and other people who offered thoughts and prayers in the wake of that tragedy. Sometimes in the wake of a tragedy, we don't know what else to do except to just pray. Going to pray for the victims, for their families, going to pray for our country and for other people that are affected by that. But the suggestion of that particular headline was that since God did not just immediately strike down every mass shooter, does not immediately just strike down every terrorist, then what that means is, is that God can't do anything, and God isn't going to do anything about evil and sin in this world. But right here, in the opening line of this genealogy, Matthew says, you are wrong. God is fixing this. Jesus has come to break the power of sin in this world. Jesus has come to give men and women a hope beyond the wickedness of this age. Jesus has come, in fact, to deliver us out of this world. 
to bring us into His kingdom and ultimately to take us to that home, to that place where sin and evil does not exist. Matthew says God is fixing this. And He does that by calling men and women to His Son through His teaching, through His life and His example, through His death, and yes, through His glorious resurrection, the problem of sin is being taken care of definitively, once and for all, as Jesus comes to bring forgiveness and reconciliation and redemption and salvation. How dare anyone say or even think that God is He's distanced from us? That God just doesn't really care about our hurts. That God isn't really all that concerned about evil and about our suffering in this world. That somehow God is just indifferent to the pain and the consequences of sin. No! God came here. And when He came, people did not call Him governor or president or even Caesar. Because he had this big political agenda and how he was going to remold and refix all of the governmental orders of this world. And when God came here, people did not call him sergeant or lieutenant or admiral or corporal or general because he was going to rally to himself an army and he was going to lead a national revolt. No. When God came here, they called him the Christ. They called him the Messiah. Because He came to remedy the problem of sin. He came to release us from the very thing which enslaves us. He came to rescue us from that which mars us and destroys us. He came, verse 21, to save His people from their sin. In fact, He came to save you. He came to save me. And while yes, that mission did begin in a humble stable, in a manger, in the little town of Bethlehem, it didn't end there. That mission was brought to its culmination on a hill outside of Jerusalem where stood a wooden cross and Jesus would give His life in order to save you and to bring God's plan to completion and to bring salvation to all who would trust in Him. What Matthew is announcing to us in this opening paragraph is that Jesus is the Savior that you and I so desperately need. And so... Perhaps this sermon has not really caused you to do that complete 180 degree turn in how you, how you think and how you feel about genealogies. I, I really don't expect anybody's gonna go home this afternoon and get all excited about reading the first nine chapters of First Chronicles. That's a tough read. But I do hope that it has, if nothing else, it has given you pause for the next time that you read this genealogy. Or maybe Luke's genealogy of Jesus. Because it is so much more than just a list of names, isn't it? It is a reminder of the extraordinary plan that God has been stitching together since the very beginning of time. And how He uses ordinary but flawed people just like you and me in order to bring us the Savior, 
Jesus the Christ. That's really good news. In fact, that is the best news that anyone could hope to hear. The question now is, do you believe it? Will you accept it? Can we help you this morning to obey it? If you are ready right now to act upon your faith, that Jesus is, He's the son of David, He's the son of Abraham, but right now, to recognize and to acknowledge and confess with your lips that He is the Son of God. If you are ready to turn away from a life of sin and turn to the Lord, the one who is able to remedy the problem of sin, And if you are ready and willing to be united with Him, immersed in water, through the death, the burial, and resurrection, be brought into conformity with the Lord in baptism, then this morning you can come up out of that water a Christian, and you can come up knowing that you are saved. Can we help you to be a Christian today? Brother or sister, it may be that you have acted upon those first principles, but you've not really been living a life that is truly pleasing and faithful to the Lord. Can we help you this morning to serve the Lord in a better way? If you need to repent, if you need to pray and ask us to encourage you and to pray with you, we're ready to assist you as well. Whatever your need may be to respond to the King, we're urging you to do that right now. The King is summoning you. Will you come? Won't you come to the front right now and make your wishes known while we stand and while we sing?